We're talking this morning about a perfect gift. And I want to begin this morning in in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read from verses 8 through verses 12, and then we're going to take a tour through Scripture this morning. So hang on to your hat. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. May God add his blessing to that portion of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. You use it to reveal to us the very thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Lord, we come before you this morning as people who haven't arrived. We're on a spiritual journey. And we need your spirit to guide and direct us step by step. So, Father, we're asking that you would use your word today to reveal to us our hearts and our needs according to your truth. Lord, through your spirit, make us willing to respond to whatever your spirit would direct us to do. Lord, we need to be conformed to the likeness of your son. So help us this morning. And as we think about a perfect gift, Lord, I pray that you would help us in some very powerful ways to realize that you're the one who's given us the great, the perfect gift. Lord, help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the Lord pressed me into full-time service, I was, uh, I was in a construction business. Uh, it was a, a very good business. I had uh, worked my way up through the chair, so to speak, and at one point I was in charge of uh, procurement. Uh, we, uh, we spent a lot of money buying supplies for this business. And I had four major vendors that were always sending salesmen into me, uh, trying to see if I would give them more of the pot, so to speak. Uh, one morning in late winter or early spring, a salesman of one of these vendors came in and he said to me, uh, how would you like to go to a Phillies game on the 4th of July and, and be in the, in, the, in the super box? You'd have a great day. Uh, when cost you sent, Everything would be on on us. And I said to him, well, personally, I'm not interested if it's just for me. However, if it's for the whole company, then, yeah, I'd be interested. He said, well, let me talk to my boss. So the next day, his boss called. And he said, how many people are we talking about? I said, well, I don't know yet. Let me put up a sign-up sheet and see who wants to plug in. So he said, well, okay, let me know. So I let it be known. I put up a sign-up sheet. People signed up. And when I knew that we had everybody who was interested, I called him up on the phone and I said, here's the number. He said, okay, we can accommodate that that many people. I said, great. I said, how are you going to get us there? He said, "Uh, do you want me to rent you a bus? I said, well, it's your gift. I said, whatever you want to do. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll rent you a bus. Now, part of, this, part of this deal was it was the 4th of July. We'd get the game. We'd get the fireworks. You'd have the super box, so you get all the food and drink there that you would, that you would want. So that was all arranged. And about the 1st of June, he calls me on the phone, and he said, uh, the Phillies are doing fireworks on the 3rd and the 5th. They're not going to do fireworks on the 4th. And I said, well, Jimmy, that was part of the draw in these families coming. I said, it's 
a 4th of July celebration, I said, you own half of Philadelphia. I said, call up the Phillies and arrange it. He said, well, he said, I'll try that. But he says, if I can't do it, how about if I have the bus bring you out to my house and I'll have fireworks at my house? I said, Jimmy, however you want to work it is fine. It's your gift. So lo and behold, on the, on the afternoon of the 4th of July, our folks gathered. They got on the bus. They went down to Philadelphia to the game, then over to Jimmy's house for fireworks, and then back home on the bus. That was a pretty good gift, wasn't it? When you think about gifts, what is it that makes a gift great? What is it that causes a gift to really be worth something? If we look in James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father in whom there is no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift is coming from the Father. I want you to understand this morning that as we've celebrated Christmas, you've all been given gifts, I'm sure. If anybody here didn't get a gift, let me know and we'll make sure that you get a gift. A gifts are a part of the Christmas tradition. Maybe it's because when Christ was born... After that time, there were these wise men, these magi, that came from east of Israel with some very precious, costly uh, gifts for the Christ child. So as a part of our Christmas tradition, we end up giving gifts to one another. Uh, I wonder if maybe we shouldn't be giving gifts to Jesus too. But this is part of our tradition, isn't it? Gift giving. So what makes a gift a good gift? Well, always the thought behind the gift becomes important. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, be spoiled, be eternally ruined, but have everlasting life. Is that good news today? Is that a great gift? It is. This is incredible. This is tremendous. God loves you. Well, why does God love you? It never ceases to amaze me. God knows everything about me, and yet he chooses to love me. And that's true of you too. God knows everything about you, and he chooses to love you. If you go back into Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, it says that God created man in his own image and likeness. God has made us a special creation. He's made us in his image and in his likeness. Now understand God is a spirit. Are we a spirit? We have a spirit within us. If you look back in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says we're spirit, soul, and body. So God has made us in his image and in his likeness. We too have a spirit. God has given us as well intellect, emotion, and will. God's given us intellect. We can figure stuff out. We can be logical. We can work through situations. We can work through problems. Uh, bad science today says that uh, humanity has evolved from the primordial ooze. We've come out of the cesspool according to Bad science. Uh, a lot of people believe that, but there's some good science out there today that says we've come about by intelligent design. There is an intelligent designer behind who we are and what we are. 
If you choose to believe that, then you begin to acknowledge God. God has given us, as a part of his image and his likeness, intelligence. We can reason things out. We can figure things out. Is that good news? You got a brain, dear one, use it. Don't be with the primordial ooze guys. Eventually, uh, it will become apparent that this theory doesn't hold any, any water at all. And there is no empirical evidence for evolution. But there's all kinds of empirical evidence for intelligent design. Intellect, emotion. Uh, God has given us emotion, love. The love of God is seeking for the other's highest good. Agapeo, agape. That's what that means. When God says he loves you, it's not this, this mushy, emotional type thing. God says, I want the very best for you. I want you to be the very best that you can be. Uh, Jesus was asked by a lawyer, what was the first and the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love, agapeo, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he adds, and the second is like it, love, agape, your neighbor as yourself. If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to do for your neighbor what you do for yourself. That can be inconvenient. That can be painful. That can be costly. We had those 14 inches of snow last week that's all gone today. But the 14 inches of snow buried our two cars and my neighbor's car and truck. Uh, because I loved myself, what was I going to do? I was going to dig myself out. But then I had to love my neighbor as myself, so guess what I had to do? I had to dig out their cars too. That was a pain in the back. But that's seeking for the other's highest good. Does that make sense to you? Uh, love isn't the only emotion that we get into, though. There's a whole range of, is, is hate? D does God hate? God hates sin. Yeah, there are things that God hates. Compassion, empathy. Uh, you can look at the, the whole range of emotions. That comes because we're God's special creation. Joy. Is that an emotion? Stand up and cheer? Yeah. We've been made in the image and in the likeness of God. Intellect, emotion, and will. God's made us free moral agents. You get to choose what you want to do. If you want to accept God, if you want to accept Jesus as your person of salvation, you have the free will to do that. I can do that. Or I can say, no way, I'm going to do it myself. I don't need to trust Jesus for my salvation. I can be good enough myself. And there are people that do that. I would always get into trouble. I was a speaker representative for a number of years for the Pennsylvania Council on alcohol problems. And I was in a gospel quartet for a number of years. So I've spoken in six, seven hundred churches in northeastern Pennsylvania, southern New York, western Jersey. And I'd always get myself into trouble. Because I would call people sinners. You know, people hate that. I'm not a sinner. Really. I had one woman in my church in West Pittston who would always argue with me 
that she wasn't a sinner. She went home to be with Jesus the day before yesterday. Uh, she can fight with him over that now. But the reality is very simple. We have a will to choose. And sometimes we choose to do that which isn't right. Sin is missing the mark, literally. In James it says, for him to know the right thing to do, and for him not to do it to him, it's sin. You all, every day, confront choices for your free will. And if you choose to do something other than the right thing you know to do, to you it's sin. What does God expect from us? In Leviticus 11, it says we're to be holy as he's holy. In Matthew 5, it makes it clear that, that you and I are to be holy, that we're to be perfect as he is perfect. How do we measure up if we're being honest? You see... He's given us intellect, emotion, and will, and sometimes we make bad choices. We make wrong choices. We mess up. Sin is literally missing the mark of God's perfection. Uh, if you've ever been to an archery range, generally they have a wall of hay bales, six or eight feet thick, and they have these, these white targets white targets with this little red thing in the center that we call a what? A bullseye. So as you stand there with your bow and arrow and you take a shot, anything outside of the bullseye is the sin. So if you're that far away from the bullseye, it's sin. If you're not even close, it's sin. All of it is sin. Only the bullseye is what you need to hit. Now, having said that to you this morning, I want you to be encouraged by the fact that your value, your worth, comes from who you are. You're in the image and in the likeness of God. He's given you spirit. He's given you intellect, emotion, and will. Because of that, it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter who you're married to. It doesn't matter how big your house is. It doesn't matter how big your bank account is. None of those things really matter. They don't account for your worth. What makes you worth everything is the fact that you're created in the image and in the likeness of God. And because you have that kind of worth, God wants to redeem you. He wants to save you from sin. Now, there's this, there's this thing that comes about by sin. Romans 6.23 The wage of sin, what you earn by sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Is that good news? There's a gift. It's free. But the wage of sin is death. Now, why can't man save himself? There are those that, that try. Uh, there are the good people. I found in my experiences in hundreds of churches that there are good people. And a lot of those good people feel that they're good enough to get God to accept them on the basis of what they've done or what, they've, what they haven't done. Uh, I don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or run around with the girls that do. So they feel that, hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. And when you go in and you say that They've sinned, and they need a Savior Jesus. Sometimes they get offended. Sometimes they get very offended. 
Sometimes the pastors get very offended. I've had pastors who have taken exception. Judy uh, took uh, our puppet team one time down into Hanover Township to a church, and she presented the gospel and talked about sin and salvation to a group of children. And as soon as the team was done, the pastor got up to say, oh, no, none of that's true. You're okay. You don't need to accept Jesus. Everything's fine. Dear ones, this is a serious thing. This is a serious thing. We can't save ourselves. We can't ever be good enough. We can't ever be philanthropic enough. We can't ever be moral enough. Because the standard isn't good. The standard is what? Perfect. And we fall short. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. Every single one of us is a sinner. The image of God in us has been marred by sin. And God expects us to be perfect. God expects us to be right. So how do we deal with that? How do we get sin out of the way? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gives us a gift to take away sin that we might have everlasting life. Now we've celebrated in the past couple of days the birth of Jesus. Remember what the angels we're declaring about Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus and he shall save his people from their... Yeah. There's a need for that, isn't it? Even for good people, there's a need for us to experience the saving power of the Lord Jesus. God's given us this gift. The way this works is that Jesus becomes a propitiation. What does that long word mean? It means a satisfactory payment. Jesus becomes a satisfactory payment for my sin and for your sin. Jesus becomes the satisfactory payment for the sin of the whole world. You and I can't be right in the sight of God without Jesus. Because he's the only satisfactory payment. What did Peter say? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We need Jesus. Every single one of us. We need Jesus. Everybody in Wilkesbury needs Jesus. This church, not the building, the church isn't a building. This is the building where the church meets. This church, that means you, needs to be a light to the city so that people see that, hey, I need Jesus. Is that good news? Can we be a light? If you look back in... Uh, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking about the churches as lampstands. The churches are to be sending out light. City light, church. What kind of light are we sending out? I'm excited to get to meet Pastor Scott. I've got some questions for him as to what the Lord's been laying on his heart about bringing light to the city. It's not his job alone. You know what his job will be? Training us to be light bearers. 
That's what the pastor's job is. It's not his job to do it. It's his job to train us how to do it. And then guess what? We need to do it. Jesus is our propitiation. This gift that's given by God, how does it come to us? Well, in Galatians 4.4, it says that at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. At just the right time. God's got his timetable, and that's frustrating to me. I want God to hurry up with stuff. God says, wait a minute. I'm working through things. Hurry up, Lord. Be patient. I'm working through things. Oftentimes we, we want things to go faster than what God seems to be doing. There are other times when God starts working that we find it hard to keep up. God in his time caused his son, and there's, there's such supernatural intricacies here, it's unbelievable. God the son is implanted in a woman's womb, and he comes into humanity as a baby. That blows my mind. It really does. goes back to Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternities, Prince of Peace. Oh, wow. Isaiah 7. And the virgin will be with the child. Bring forth a son and you'll call him Emmanuel. How is this possible? It's possible because we have a God who is so great that for him nothing is impossible. Is that good news? What's your situation today? Does it seem overwhelming to you? God is able. Nothing is impossible. Is that good news? <coughs> what you see here is, is, is truly great. This gift that God has given is, is Jesus. And how is he God incarnate? Because... He's from eternity past. You look into, into Micah 5. And it makes it clear that his origins are from old, from eternity. How can that be? It's that way because we have such an awesome God. We see something in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God, God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son to me. Uh, Abraham had already sent Ishmael away. The only son he had with him was Isaac, the son that God had promised him, the son that Abraham fathered. At 99, that... Uh, Sarah carried at 89, uh, just a supernatural birth. God says, I want you to sacrifice this son to me. Go on up on Mount Moriah, and there you're going to offer him to me. Abraham followed completely everything, everything that God was directing him to do. Uh, as they're going up this mountain slope, uh, there's a bundle of wood. There's a dagger. There's a torch with the fire, but there's no sacrifice. And Isaac asks his dad. Now, Isaac is probably about 10 or 12 years old. Dad, what about the sacrifice? And you know what Abraham says? God will provide himself the sacrifice. God will provide himself the sacrifice. 
What does God do? That was a type of what was coming. God provides himself the sacrifice. We believe in a triunity God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God was providing himself as the sacrifice to be the propitiation for my sin and for yours, the satisfactory payment. In other words, God took on human form and human flesh. That's the incarnation. He lived among us. He revealed the nature of God to us. And then he died to be the satisfactory payment for, for my sin, for your sin, and for the sin of the whole world. Is that amazing? Is that good news? Does that make you want to run out the doors and shout to everybody you need Jesus? If it does, then I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. That's our reality. God gave himself as a sacrifice. I love reading through the gospel accounts. I get to go through them about twice a year. And in those gospel accounts, you see the nature of God. Was Jesus concerned about those who were hungry? Did he feed them? Was Jesus concerned about those who were sick? What did he do? Was Jesus concerned about those who were trapped in sin? What did he do? He set them free. Then he died for them. When you see the nature, when you see the character of our God, how can you not love our God? In every other world religion, the gods that are worshipped, they are not personal. They don't care about they're worshipers, but in this Christianity, in this way of life, we have a God who is personal, a God who cares about everything that concerns you. I have to be honest with you, it was kind of a, a tough couple of days. Uh, Dad is in a hospital bed, uh, down by the river. The water's coming up. How high will it go? Will we have to evacuate mom and dad? If we do, where can we take them? Cottage is closed. There's no heat in it. Can't take them there. What do we do? Lord, there's nothing too hard for you. Lord, there's nothing impossible. Send the cold. Check the runoff. Keep the river level down. You know what? The Lord did exactly that. And I'm so thankful. We're confronted with these things every day that are well beyond us, but we have a God who is compassionate, a God who is caring, and he does for us what would need to be done. Jesus is our only hope of redemption. Why? Well, because you and I are sinners and Jesus is perfect. Uh, not to get into all of the, the, the legal technicalities here, but understand that there was a legal process taking place. Someone had to die to pay for sin. Somebody had to die to pay for me in my sin. God the Son Jesus would do that for me. Uh, but then he's doing it for all of you too. How can that be? Well, understand, if you look what Paul says back in Romans, he says that the first Adam, he brought sin to humanity. The last Adam, he brings life to humanity. Jesus dies for Adam and Adam's race, the human race. I, I sometimes get distressed when I hear these church leaders talking about races. There's not races, dear one. There's one race. It's the human race. There may be different skin tones, skin, skin colors. Beloved, we're all humans. There's only one race. And Jesus died 
for Adam and all that came from Adam. Did Eve come from Adam? She did. The whole rest of humanity came from Adam and Eve. Jesus dies for Adam and all who came from Adam. That way we're all included. But there's a need for us to be receptive, to be responsive. Our good life can't save us. If you go back into Ephesians 2, it says, uh, by, uh, by grace are you saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as the gift of God, not as the result of works, good works, so that no one can boast. Nobody's going to stand in heaven and say, boy, this is what I did to get to heaven. That's not going to happen. You know why? Because nobody's going to be there on their own effort. It's just not the reality. It's just not what, what happens. Redemption provides so much for us. And I'm not going to get into all that redemption provides for us because we're, we're, we're going to run out of time here and, and you're only going to absorb so much. So I'm not going to saturate you so greatly that you forget the stuff that the Spirit of God wants you to, wants you to retain. Uh, he is our only hope of redemption. There is no other. He is our only hope of eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No other way for you to get to heaven. I know there's a bunch of religions out there who are saying, oh, if you just do good, you get to heaven. If your good outweighs your bad, you'll get to heaven. Uh, that's a mumsimus. That's a mistaken belief and a mistaken idea. That's not how it works. None of us, none of us are good. Hate to shatter your bubble. We're all sinners. You may be better than somebody else, but you're certainly not better than Jesus, or you're not even up to par with, with Jesus. He is our only way of eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the only way that you get everlasting life. And then there's this abundant life. Jesus said he came that you might have life and have it to the full. Abundant life isn't about the stuff that we possess. Not at all. Abundant life is about the one who possesses us. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Not a thing. In 1972, when I walked the muddy streets around here, so many people said to me, it's gone. It's all gone. I've lost everything. All the stuff was gone. River came up. The water touched the ceiling here inside this, this building. Everything was gone. Devastation. People felt like everything I've, I've worked for all my life, it's all gone. Abundant life isn't in the things that you possess. Abundant life is found in the one who possesses you. You see, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Abundant life is found in taking what the Lord has entrusted to you and sharing it with others, being a faithful steward, saying, hey, okay, how can my life make an eternal difference? How can my life make an impact? How can my life be shared in such a way that when I stand before Jesus, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's abundant life. That's living your life through the power of the Spirit to make an eternal impact. Is that where you're at today? Is your life making a statement for eternity? Are people seeing Christ in you? And then it's our only means for a holy life. Uh, 
without holiness, no one will see God. Holiness is not uh, being better than someone else. Holiness means that you're set apart for God and his purposes. Uh, this is not an easy thing. This is a struggle. This is saying, God, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? In Isaiah 6. Spiritually, Isaiah is lifted up into the very throne room in heaven. He sees God. He says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst people of unclean lips. My eyes have beheld his, his glory. And then this angel comes and takes the tongs and takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and purifies Isaiah. And Isaiah says, Lord, hear my send me. When the Lord says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, send me. As you read through the book of Isaiah, your skin begins to crawl to see the things that Isaiah had to go through. For three years, Isaiah went naked and barefoot. Lord, don't ask me to do that. I'm going to have a hard time doing that, Lord. Why? Because he's trying to make a statement to the people of Israel. You need to pay attention to me because if you don't, here's how you're going to end up. This life of holiness is to say, Lord, my life is set apart for you to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Jesus shows that for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. Are you able in your Christian journey, in your Christian walk, to be able to say, Lord, I've separated myself to you, to your purposes. Whatever it is that you have for me to do, I'm willing to do it. Have you gotten that far yet? If not, the Lord's going to continue to draw you that way because that's what he wants for you. He wants a holy life. And Jesus is the only means of a holy life. Well, you're, you're getting to the point of saturation. So let me get down to the reception of the gift. You have to receive God's gift. Jesus is God's gift. You need to receive that. In John 1 it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Uh, this aspect of receiving requires you to repent. That means you declare to God you're right and I'm wrong. You told me not to do it and I did it. Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Help me to turn from, from sin. Uh, when you do that, there's a lot that occurs, and I can't go through all of it this morning. But when you look in the Old Testament, you see something that takes place. Uh, Joseph sets his two sons on Jacob's knees. Uh, that was a symbol of adoption. And suddenly now there's no tribe of Joseph, there's a tribe of Manassas and Ephraim. Adoption. Uh, if you look in, in Romans 8, what happens when you receive Jesus is your person of salvation. When you believe on his name, it's like setting yourself on the knees of God and God adopts you. You become his child. Uh, this is something that needs to occur. If you've never, if you've never understood that, your spiritual journey begins the moment that you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, as the one who died for you. That's where your spiritual journey begins, and then it moves out from there. That's that's just the beginning. That's not the end. When you accept Jesus, it's the beginning of, of new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if, any, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone. 
the old way of thinking, the old way of speaking, the old way of acting. That's gone, and everything becomes new. Is that good news? That's where this reception becomes very, very important to us. We become God's child. Uh, we're taken from the domain of darkness, from the clutches of Satan, and we're brought into the kingdom of God, into his glorious light. You who are believers, you have the ability to exercise free will in choosing whether to sin or not to sin. People that aren't believers, they can't help it. Their default is set on sin, and that's what they do day by day. Why? Because their mind is set on self. It's not seeking for the other's highest good. It's seeking for numero uno. I'm concerned about me. I want for me. That becomes a real challenge. So our permanent dress changes, our, our attitudes change. We won't be conforming to the pattern of this world any longer. You are bombarded every single day with the stuff of this world. It becomes challenging. For moms like Heather with small children, it becomes challenging. We send our kids to school. They're in school 30, how many hours a week? 32, 35? So for 30-some hours a week, our children are being bombarded with the culture of this world, which is messed up. We, we bring them into a church setting for maybe an hour or two on a Sunday and think that that's going to balance what's happened in school. And not only school, you go out from that and you get on television. You get on educational television. The ways of the world, the culture, are being impressed upon the, the, the minds of our kids. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, probably one of the most prominent Christian philosophers of the last century, said for every, every hour that he spent in secular philosophy, he had to spend five hours in the Word of God just to maintain his balance. Is it any wonder why our world is in such a mess? Beloved, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. We need to be immersed in God's truth. We need to be set apart for him. But we have to begin the journey by repenting of our sin and embracing Jesus as our, as our person of salvation. That's the picture today. That's the picture. And I know I dumped a whole bunch of stuff on you today. Most of it you're going to forget. But what the Spirit wanted you to hear this morning, he's going to keep working over and over and over in your mind. Why? Because he wants you to take something away today that will help you on your spiritual journey. Two challenges this morning. The first one is for anyone who has never publicly acknowledged Jesus as their person of salvation. Saying in their heart, Lord, I'm repenting of my sin and I'm accepting Jesus as my personal Savior. That's the first challenge in just a minute. The second challenge is for those of you who are on that spiritual journey. You're all in different spots in that journey. This is going to be different for each of you, but the Spirit of God is saying to you right now, there's something that I, I have for you to do. I want you to take the next step of faith, even though it's hard, even though it's scary, I want you to be willing to commit that to me so I can help you. Second challenge. The Spirit of God is here. And the Spirit of God is speaking to hearts. And dear ones, if you leave here today without uh, responding to him, I can guarantee you, you will have the most miserable week. Don't, don't do that to yourself. Let's, let's, look, let's look to the Lord. Father, Thank you for your spirit here this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the perfect gift of Jesus who does such incredibly great things for us now and throughout eternity.
Lord, your spirit is speaking to hearts here this morning. Father, we're sinners. We haven't arrived. We're not perfect. But we desire to become more like Jesus, to be conformed to his likeness. So, Father, give us the help. Give us the boldness that we need this morning to take those steps of faith that your spirit is encouraging us to do. And for that, we'll give you thanks. With every head bowed this morning, with every heart open, is there one by the uplifted hand here this morning who would say to me, Brother Don, I need to begin a spiritual journey with Jesus. I've never publicly proclaimed him as my Savior. But I want to do that this morning, and I need prayer. I need help. Please pray for me. Is there one this morning by the uplifted hand who would say, I need Jesus this morning? Is there one? Don't turn him away, dear one. Is there one? You're here this morning. The Spirit of God is tugging at your heart. There's something that the Spirit has for you to do, and you need help taking that next step of faith, and you need prayer. Is there one by the uplifted hand who would say, Brother Don, pray for me. I need to take that next step of faith. Is there one? God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Are there others? God bless you. I need to take that step. It's hard, I know, but Lord, help me. Are there others? Are there others? Father, we come before your throne again. Lord, we resolve to be all that we can be for you. Lord, there's been this group that has acknowledged that your spirit is asking them to take the next step of faith. I don't know what it is, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would begin to strengthen and encourage them even now. Lord, I pray that uh, in these days, your spirit would show that uh, he is sufficient to help them to see the changes come, to see the, the needed steps in this process on this spiritual journey to be the best that they can be for you. And Lord, as you show yourself to them to be sufficient, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the thanks. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.